Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. We are here in person together. We are melted onto the couch. <laughs> and we have a special guest on our dish today. It is our producer for the Double Read Dish recording. It is the celebrity, Dr. Chris Wilson. That's me. <laughs> So, Gilly, give a recap of the past, like, 48 hours. What have we been up to? So, um, we've been recording six hours a day for the last two days. We are over halfway done. Yes. I don't know exactly how much over halfway. That's a question for our producer. (laughs) (laughs) But it has been busy our lips are chapped it's been a whirlwind this is my first like real professional recording experience so it's been really cool to see how the spaghetti gets made and what spaghetti (laughs) i'm pretty sure the thing is sausage sausage (laughs) pretty sure it's sausage couldn't let that go. And uh, Chris, why don't you give us a recap of um, how fabulous we sound? <laughs> well, it's been going wonderfully. You have that was not the relevant question. There is no weapon held to his throat. <laughs> uh, so you have five days booked, and honestly, you're like over two thirds of the way done uh, after two days. Uh, it has sounded lovely. Fabio has also been awesome. Fabio Manchetti, our collaborative pianist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, earlier today, um, I paid Jackie a compliment through the uh, the speaker into the studio. And she said, oh, what was that? I repeated it. And she goes, I heard it the first time. I just wanted to hear it again. <laughs> I mean, can you, can you get too much positive reinforcement during this very vulnerable making process? The answer is no. No. Well, Galit, we should remind our listeners of what we're recording and, uh, you know, what's going to be on this album and where did it come from? So if you've 
listened at all any time in the last year, you've heard us talk about our consortium project. Um, we, along with the over 100 consortium members, have commissioned Kate Pukinskis, Mason Bynes, Connor Chi, and Bryn Solomon to write brand new works for Oboe and Bassoon. And now we are recording a, an album so that you can all hear the music for yourselves and hopefully play it. So that's the part of the process that we're in right now is just you know, getting this recording in, it will then be edited and mixed and mastered and released. Um, so that whole process is super exciting. And next week, we are going on a whirlwind tour of the Midwest, so that we can play these pieces in person, um, and just kind of spread the word about these uh, new pieces that hopefully will be a part of the double read world in the future. And listen, it Galit's right. It's an extremely professional setup. We have a fabulous recording studio at WSU. And uh, we have a recording engineer, John, who's fabulous. And um, Chris, why don't you describe what your role is? Like what even is a producer on a classical music album? Like we know about like Dr. Dre. <laughs> <laughs> but like what does that mean? What does what your job entail? So... I have a score in front of me as well as notes for every section that gets recorded. Let's say in the first movement, they're going from, um, you know, a certain amount of measures is that I watch the score. I have to listen very carefully or I get yelled at. Um, and I'm there to help reinforce um, certain ideas. So we get done playing, they get done playing. And if, you know, if they're feeling good about it, but they have some questions. Did you hear when blah happened in measure 10? Uh, it's my job to make sure that I'm listening carefully and attentively, but also to kind of help lead the way um, as far as like, was that take a yes? Was it a no? Um, if it was a no, why? Um, I'm not really there looking to coach or, you know, uh, give them feedback on what they're playing, but I, it can be helpful to have an extra set of ears in there for, was that together? Was that section in tune? Um, did it come across the way that I intended? And then sometimes, you know, if we've got a, a question about something, John and I will go and listen back to it. Um, so it's just really an extra set of ears and then keeping detailed notes for when the editing happens so they don't have to go fishing through different takes. Well, and... Honestly, the care that they're taking in this recording process, they'll give us flack if there is a like a key click. They'll be like, oh, let me listen back to Matt. You might have had a key click. It's like it's the bassoon. The keys are going to click. You're going to get key noise. I don't want to hear about that. Um, uh, one time it was like, oh, Fa Fabio had a mouth sound. <laughs> I don't know if we can use that. It's like, to, hello, are to, we Taylor Swift here? To be fair, you came to the close of a big section and like within nanoseconds of the music stopping, there was a slurp sound. No, that was me. That wasn't Fabio. Well. I slurped on my read. There was also a Fabio. Yes. Because listen, sometimes you get done with a big take. And good or bad, you have a words that you say silently, and, <laughs> and we'll just leave it at that. Um, but Galit, you 
I won. You had your own kind of noise event. Go ahead and describe <laughs> this improvisation to the listeners. Okay. So this whole the last two days I have been I didn't realize how sensitive these microphones are. And I also didn't realize how loud my stomach has been grumbling. <laughs> because in Mississippi I'm a full two hours ahead of of the time zone in Washington state. So it's 10:30 a.m. here. You're hungry. But I'm hungry. It's <laughs> lunchtime. <laughs> you don't need to apologize for being hungry in this group. It's fine. Well, it just got like the first day I had so many tummy grumbles that we had to work around and then in the afternoon session my stomach made the loudest Sound. It sounded like there were microphones in my stomach. Can confirm. <laughs> and I like stopped and made a shocked face and it happened during a silence. And then everyone in the recording room looked at me with a shocked face. And it was just the most ridiculous thing to happen. And uh, lucky for us, our recording engineer, John, uh, was able to share that clip with us. And so for your listening pleasure, we have the stomach sound of 2022. It was so funny because you were like, did you hear my tummy grumble? And everyone was like, yes, we did. tummy sound that ended the world (laughs) and tomorrow we get a special reward we get a chris wilson special of steak it's gonna be so good yeah you're gonna spoil this because chances are we'll be done recording tomorrow knock on wood but we'll be we'll be we have enough to celebrate we're here doing it yeah right so you've decided we get a nice little celebratory dinner. Yeah, steak on the grill, just for y'all. Yeah, this is this is your payment to us <laughs> for being our producer for free. Yeah, that's true. I guess you're doing <laughs> us the favor, and then you're making us food to say good job for this favor yes. you're doing us. <laughs> I got nothing. Is she, is she a joy or what? You both are. <laughs> Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Kane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Kane here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B flat key. 
all are maintained by OBO-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. We are delighted to welcome to the podcast, John Simer, oboist and repair person. Welcome to Double Read Dish. Thanks so much. It's very nice to be here. We love to get to know our guests by hearing how they first came to their instruments. So could we hear about how you started to play the oboe? I started to play the oboe in the eighth grade. I was in a... um, public school in Lancaster, New York, which is Buffalo. And um, I was fortunate I had a a middle school, well, it was junior high, junior high teacher who was an oboist herself, Tara Steinbacher, and I started with her. And so I had an oboist right from the get-go. I had a, I actually wanted to play the bassoon, I think. Um, And when they brought out that teeny little case, I thought, hmm, it's kind of small. Um, but I thought the bassoon was called the oboe, and they insisted, no, this is an oboe. So I took it, and I got kind of good in about a couple days. I could play the whole C major scale or something. So um, I um, I stuck with the oboe, and then when I got in band, I realized the instrument that I thought was the oboe was actually the bassoon, and that was somebody sitting behind me. So um, <laughs> got um, got that clear immediately, but I... I I was very fortunate. We had very good um, music um, teachers in our school, and uh, I got kind of good kind of quickly. I, uh, Mrs. Steinbacher, the, the teacher, was um, somewhat, I thought she was kind of mean to me, so I thought I'd learn to make my own reads instead of buying hers. So right <laughs> off the get-go, I, I learned how, I taught myself how to make reads from a, a read kit I bought, and they were incredibly bad, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, they were, they sort of, when I would open them up, they'd look like straws. They were open like a circle. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> I had a very strong embouchure. And um, so after that, I studied with um, a local high school girl named uh, Cheryl Bishkoff. Well, she's now Cheryl Bishkoff. She's in, um, I think she's principal in the Rhode Island Philharmonic now. Wow. But she was a local. And, uh, and then with Ronald Richards in... Um, he had been in the Buffalo Philharmonic, but um, he uh, was uh, was a pharmacist also. So he he was a very very great teacher for me, and he taught all the local kids. Uh, he was Marty Schering's teacher, for example, in high school, who was a classmate, class year mate of mine in a nearby high school. Marty, was there a uh, big rivalry? No, he was he was clearly better than I was. And so, uh, <laughs> He was very good. He, he, you know, he went to Curtis and, um, um, but our teacher was Ronald Richards. He was a very expressive, um, very, very singing kind of teacher. So I, I, I saw the oboe as a, as a very expressive, um, you know, kind of flexible, wild thing that you had to play and, you know, you could really play your heart out. And so that's kind of how I played it. Um, and then upon graduating from, I got 
you know, I, I think acceptably good to the point that I got into all state kind of things. And, you know, you get encouragement from, from success. So, um, at the end of my senior year, I went to a summer school at um, Saratoga, uh, Saratoga Springs, New York, with the Philly Orchestra, and I, I got to spend a study summer with uh, John Delancey, uh, with four other, three other kids, and I studied with Mr. Delancey, and I, that was a really eye-opening experience for me because I learned that the instrument could be better than just a wild thing, you know, kind of like a barnyard animal or something. It was, it was a refined. He was extremely refined, and I, I, I really took that to heart and embraced what he did. So um, I fell in love with that kind of playing, and, and that's pretty much what we would call the American school, the playing, the Tabito school. Um, but I went to a regular college. I went to Dartmouth College, and I was a biology major and um, continued a few lessons with, um, with Rudy Verbsky there. He was um, local. Um, at the time, living in Marlboro, um, uh, Vermont, which is across the river, down the river from where I was. And then I graduated from Dartmouth and uh, went to Eastman School for grad school, studied with Robert Sprankle. And um, it just it gets harder and harder to play the oboe when you get more and more scrutiny. You know, I, I think we all realize that. And I started thinking midway through that and um, probably maybe even before that, that um, trying to, and I think this is important. Um, we have a, each of us has our own set of skills and my, my particular skills and talents lay more in the technical side of playing the oboe. So um, I really adored making reads. I loved figuring them out. I loved tinkering with stuff, you know, gouging machines and shaping and all that stuff. I mean, I had a comical thing happen in high school. I was, um, I was in Allstate and my, my my oboe teacher, uh, Mr. Richards, was out of town, and um, he would loan us his shaper handle and tip to to shape cane. So I had some gouge cane, and I had no reeds to go to Allstate with. So I'm thinking, now what do I do? So I went down in the basement, and my, my dad had some um, metal strips. He was an engineer, and so I made my own shaper in about 10 minutes on the um, grinding wheel, and I made you my one your reed. own shaper? Yeah, I made my own shaper on a, on, out of a piece of metal, and I shaped one piece of cane, and I made one reed. It was green, and uh, went to New York Allstate, and I played the whole festival on that reed, and it was, it was fine. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I'd hate to see that. I don't know what happened to that shaper, but that's the kind of kid I was. I was kind of like, you know, I like to fool around with stuff. So um, when I got out of Eastman, I, I felt like, um, gee, maybe I went to a couple of auditions, and I thought, you know, I really don't enjoy this whole performing thing as much as maybe other people might and do. And it wasn't really a big part of what I needed um, from life. You know, I, I needed to um, to maybe be more creative or more hands-on with things. So I was very fortunate after that to, um, to get a, an apprenticeship at Paul Covey um, Oboes in Baltimore. He, he was an oboe maker just starting out. And I was his second employee. To, to make the oboes. He, he had made two oboes so far. So I started with number oboe number three and through 120. So I made, wow. in, in five years, I, I was party to the creation of about 120 oboes. Covey do oboes. you still and have? Do you still I have? have a, I have one. Um, I have number 30 something that I made and he put my initials on it. 
Um, Stop. I made all the keys on Yobo. So um, that is so special. Well, it's um, it's a particular skill that you learn, and so I basically learned everything there is to know about creating an oboe uh, at his shop. And I, I was there for five years, and I was very fortunate. He was extremely nice to me, and then and then. Um, Toward the end of that, I mean, I didn't have any end game in mind. I thought maybe I'd stay there a long time. But I had met Dick Woodhams, who was, um, you know, just freshly installed in the Philly Orchestra. And uh, he would come down to Paul's to get his oboe work done. And while Paul was doing that, I would fiddle with Dick's gouging machine. And Dick liked that gouge that I would do for him. So I started working on his gouging machine and um, his various gouging machines. And I got to know him very well, or pretty well. And at a certain point in there, the um, the super famous repairman in Philadelphia, Hans Menig, um, was retiring. And Dick called me up and said, uh, say, you know, there's an opportunity up here in Philly. If you'd like to come and set yourself up, he would be supportive. So I did. And that's how I became me. And um, I've been here ever since. And so my, he's he's kind of like my big um, my big hero oboe player, and you know he's just retired now. So it, it kind of shows the whole arc of his career kind of meets the arc of my career. Although I'm continuing to carry on what I do, even though he has retired and so forth. So, um, well, you continuing to carry on what you do is good news for all of us. So I'm glad that. Well, <laughs> thank you. Sometimes you know it, it's difficult. Um, I do. I do work for tons and tons of wonderful oboists uh, and I love them. Every single one of them. I work for the top professionals and um, I work for the beginners and I work for amateurs and I work for kooky people and um, super focused people. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's been very interesting. And, and I, I get a lot of, um, I get more back from them probably than they get from me in, ter- in yeah. terms of just, you know, interaction and, uh, I don't want to say support or anything like that, but um, aside from the financial, it's been a very interesting career I've had. It's delightful to to be able to say that, isn't it? So, Well, before I ask you more about your very interesting career, um, you surely won't remember this, but I had a really wonderful interaction with you when I was a student. Yeah. I had a very embarrassing thing happen to me. So I was up in... In Philadelphia, I had you work on my oboe. This was probably, I don't know, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. I had you work on my oboe. I, it felt amazing. I went to a practice room and I was practicing. And then I set the oboe down on uh, on the desk. And I didn't realize that the desk was slanted. And it rolled and off. I, and it fell off. Cause I went to the bathroom and I was in the hallway and I heard this and I was, my blood ran cold. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So <laughs> I felt like such an idiot because you had just that day. <laughs> the oboe so then i remember calling you and you said it's okay bring it tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) and you were so kind to me well i'm good such a disaster i'm glad i'm i'm glad glad it did so it ended okay it ended fine because i hadn't left philly yet and you just 
like fixed it again and you were so kind and i oh, have nice. never forgotten that i just wanted well, to say thank you <laughs> that see that's that's nice and and um i'm I don't even remember. That's that's not a black mark I would put next to your name, like a check mark. Because <laughs> now you can. <laughs> yeah, okay. I would like that black mark on the record now, please. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Very funny. No, this no, was back know, when, when I was a student, and I just remember feeling so stupid, and you were so nice about it. It oh was awesome. Well, Sometimes I worry I'm not nice, but um, that's kind of funny. You know, repair people have a reputation for being grumpy, you know, a la Hans Menig and um, kind of cantankerous and irascible and all those those things. And people are always surprised when they meet me. Oh, you're nice. Or, or you know, <laughs> you're not 80 years old smoking a pipe, you know. So it's funny. I think as a repair person, you've got to be a accessible. You know, you've got to be able to do it when the person need you to do it. I can't get a swab out four weeks from now if you need it out, right? Um, and um, so I've, I've made a priority of trying to be that way. Although, you know, sometimes I, I fail to see the phone has rung or something like that. But I generally, I really try. So it's a priority. What are some of your favorite projects to work on? I mean, people send you oboes, they send you gouging machines, they send you all sorts of projects, I'm sure. What are your favorite things to work on? Probably um, some kind of voicing on an oboe for a good oboe player, some kind of like tuning thing or some kind of manipulation of the instrument in a way that makes a good instrument even better. Um, Like fixing an out-of-tune note or making the whole thing click. So it has a really definite ending that's very good and and helpful that i think is my favorite thing to do my least favorite thing to do is something like changing tenon corks although i do it or you know um changing another octave pad or something like that but sure um the 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 famous people are really fun to work for uh and but it's also really fun to to make an instrument that um absolutely doesn't work and in two minutes if i turn a few screws and it works great for the kid that's also very uh, a very fun thing to do so, so it's the whole gamut of um, um you know possibilities there but it's the it's the good outcome that i like and so that's what you always hope for is a good outcome now with this question i don't mean to try to put you out of business but what are some things that you wish people knew more how to do by themselves at home in terms of maintaining their oboes? What are some, you know, common issues that are easy to resolve? That's a really good, that's an excellent question. I think just people generally don't, many people don't take good enough care of their instrument. For example, they don't, you could easily do something like wiping off your keys when you're done, and that can prevent a number of things happening. You can um, not make reads with the instrument on your lap so that you get reed shavings in the pads. That's a uh, a no-no. You know, that ultimately um, the little chunks of cane get under the pads and then you have leaky pads. Or, um, you know, knowing how to adjust the eight or ten simple things like the serpentine key, you know, the one that goes from the F sharp to the G. Mm-hmm. Um that's an easy G sharp. I mean, F sharp mm-hmm. to G sharp. That's that's an easy one for most people to do. So it's kind of the easy things. Um, you know, when I go to a concert and I hear 
oboist, and I hear that their B natural just sounds uncomfortable, uncomfortably sharp. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, their little C pad isn't closing, and they just haven't figured out how to adjust that one little thing or even test for it. So um, little little tests that you can develop at home would be good to learn. And no, it's not putting me out of business because it, um, it's, you know, just, just adjusting that is kind of like too easy in a way. Um, so yeah, basic maintenance, taking good care of the instrument, keeping the case clean. You know, I always think um, I wish this person hadn't been so messy because now they ruined many pads. You know, they don't need to. So that kind of thing. Well, I saw a masterclass once with Ken Potzik, who's a very famous repairman on Bassoon, and he kind of had this um, PowerPoint slide of horror stories, and he didn't name names, but it was kind of like um, learn from other people's mistakes. And so I wonder if you have, without naming names, any like hilarious or just like horrifying stories of things you have seen over the years in as a repair person yeah i one one springs quickly to mind because i think it is the big horror story and i think i'll have to name names because uh, (laughs) um because it's not as dramatic if i don't i'll tell you what i'll leave out the name but um you can figure it out so there was a very, very famous local oboist here who was in his orchestra and they were recording the complete set of Beethoven symphonies with Ricardo Muti conducting. Okay. Um, <laughs> 30 years ago. And we had prior to this, um, this, this uh, guy, I'm talking about Dick Williams. He, he, um, he, he, he was such an experimenter and he would ask for just amazingly, interesting things and I would carry them out for him many times. So he wanted to try putting a little water tube a la, like what a bassoon has in an octave key of an oboe to keep the water from getting in the top octave key, which is a big problem when you're playing, you know, water in the top octave key. So I made this tiny little brass tube and stuck it in, in so it just protruded into the bore a tiny bit, sort of like a clarinet um, register key. You know, you could if you look on the inside, you saw a little thing protruding. So um, they're recording the Beethoven symphonies while during a break, Dick got the swab stuck against the um, the little water tube. And so the swab stuck. The Philly Orchestra's now on break. And, and I think Muti's um, um, limousine driver drove him back to Center City where I was. And, you know, it's about they were recording maybe 15 minutes away and he shows up and can you get the swab out? So. Here's Dick pacing back and forth behind me, you know, cursing himself out for this whole situation. And I, I'm in there, you know, sweat's pouring off my face and I'm tapping the swab out. I got it out really quickly, thank God, and, you know, sent him on his way. But he needed to record that on that particular oboe because he had started the, I think it was, they were doing Beethoven's Third, maybe. And you can buy the recording. It's great. You know, it's the, um, the, the, the Muti. <laughs> So that's my that's my big um, horror story. Does that does that a good one? Is that okay? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent amazing. one. <laughs> oh yeah, there's lots of stuff. Sometimes the really traumatic ones you try to forget, like the sad on oboes or the the um, dr- the driven over by the car oboes. Those are those are good. I mean, can you, you know, do anything just... for that? Can, like if a, yeah. an oboe has been run over by a car? Yeah, sure. You can. You can. 
you know, as long it usually rips keys off and like breaks posts out, but you can rebuild all that and, uh, you know, put it all back together or, or get new parts or, you know, reconstruct things. No, I've done it a couple of times, actually. It's kind of fun. <laughs> Does it still sound the same after it's been run over by a car and reassembled? Well, who, I mean, it, come on, if you're going to run your robo over with a car, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to really um, be too picky afterwards. You know? <laughs> or at, at that point, it might just be a very nice lamp. Right. Right. <laughs> um, so I have a couple. Okay. So there is this, I wasn't aware of this controversy. Should I, as an amateur repair person just trying to maintain my own instrument Mm -hmm. remove the octave vent to clean it or should i not because i've heard do it and i've heard don't you dare touch it throw away the octave vent remover get rid of it don't even look at it those those uh, octave vent removers that you can buy that are adjustable are somewhat lethal and somewhat unreliable they're a little too flexible so i make my own and um, I grind them out of a little, uh, a cheap little screwdriver. So you can you can make a tool that's a little more reliable than those 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 um, you know ready-made ones that are adjustable. But no, I think you should be able to do it. Just remember, if something, if you can't do it, then go to the repairman. I mean, if it get the the biggest difficulty is that you won't be able to get it out. And the other difficulty might be that the whole bottom part comes out too. And then you should go see the repairman with that. Mm-hmm. But if that doesn't happen, no, I see no reason that people can't do anything. But um, that said, um, I think that uh, that fussed over oboes by, by the players are usually in the worst shape. You know, mm. um, you know, half the people completely leave them alone and put them in the case and those players generally have an instrument that works more often than the ones that are really fooling around all the time and always mm-hmm. have the keys off and doing this and that. Because what I do is um, it's incredibly learnable and incredibly um, deducible and um, uh, rational. And um, it's basically an engineering project, but um, I don't think everybody has the skill or the um, the manual skill or the uh, conceptual skill to be able to do it. And so if you feel like you don't have that skill, then don't push yourself. I think that's, I think that if you feel like you, you can't do it, then don't. And it's perfectly acceptable to, I can name 15 great oboists who, who don't own a screwdriver, you know, who wouldn't touch their instrument. And that's the life I dream of living. Well, um, you know, I, 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 my advice is always don't go looking for trouble on the thing because you'll find it easily. (laughs) Right. Um, so um, generally, uh, you know, a left alone instrument probably works better. Okay. But if you have the talent, then do it. Are there any um, adjustment manuals that you tend to recommend? I've looked at Carl Sawicki's. It's the one printed on red paper. I have that one. I love that yeah. one. Yeah, that's that's good. Uh, I think what's difficult, I think Pat McFarland wrote one. Um it's the kind of thing, if you need that, then maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Although, you know, it, it, uh, I think you should be able to look at the, at the instrument and kind of see it or not. Okay. Right. Um, there are certain tricks you can learn how to take things apart, you know, in a certain order might help. 
um, that kind of thing. But um, the, the instrument, I don't think, is conceived of as a kit. You know, it's not it's not intended to be fooled with, even though they do give you a screwdriver with most, you know, most oboes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's funny because like the best flutes do not have adjustment screws. They the, the makers are smart enough to to um, to make the flute without adjustment screws. So you can't adjust the flute without putting little shims of paper here and there and so forth. So the the uh, the flute world's a little different than the oboe world. What do you recommend for people who have chronic water problems? Well, sometimes water, well, if if they've got, if they've checked that their holes are clean on the instrument or that, um, you know, they're not playing a cold instrument. Um, One thing to think about is the pitch of your reeds. Are you, are you constantly lifting the pitch when you play? Uh, Because if you are, for example, think about the note B flat. Actually, think about which notes tend to get water in them. They tend to be the flat notes. So F, C, B flat. Uh, And um, so we're probably, as we play B flat, especially if we have reeds that are below pitch, we're we're lifting those notes. And as a result, I think we're putting a little more air through them. And so air is encouraged to go where where it's traveling. I mean, water is encouraged to go along with the air when it's traveling faster. So... um, the water is going to go to the flat notes. So um, make sure your reeds are up to pitch when you, um, when you play. So a lot of, a lot of playing on flat reeds to try them. um, I would avoid that. Um, And then um, constant swabbing, maybe not the best idea. Uh, I know players, well, Bert Legrelli, for example, never swabbed his oboe at all Mm -hmm. and claimed he never had water. So, Go figure on that one, but um, and then that? holding the instrument so it angles, um, angles you know away so the water runs down the back of it might be helpful for chronic water. But you know some instruments are just gonna get it, and um, that's hard. But there are tricks to get it out. Uh, you could put a little track of, of maybe lightly soapy water down the back of the instrument, a uh, little dribble of water, and and then the 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 fresh track when you play will follow that. So I would say swab it less, uh, make sure your holes are clean. I've had people say when they use a feather, they get less water. And I use a feather for my oboe um, or a swab, you know, doesn't um, doesn't really matter. But um, be careful with swabs also. You don't want to stretch out the instrument. Right. Make it make it too big at the top because you can. And um, and then that ruins the, the, um, the acoustics of the instrument. Then it doesn't play its scale as well. Can you explain why um, excessive swabbing would encourage water? Well, um, I, <laughs> it's funny, but, you know, I, I've had people come to me. I'm getting lots and lots of water in trill keys or octave keys. And when I take them apart, I see tons of lint in the holes. And I can even tell the color of the swab they use from the oh. lint. So uh, it acts like a little sponge right at that intersection between the bore and the hole. And the water goes there and then um, goes into the lint plug and then it goes up in the hole. So um, <laughs> I think swabs leave more lint than um, than feathers do. Um, and so make sure your swab is not a linty kind and make sure it's not dusty and dirty when you use it. So, so if you put it on the floor, probably a bad idea. Mm. Um, and I like to give it a little snap shake before I put it through the instrument just to um, <clears throat> ensure that it's not dirty, the swab. 
Yeah, I'm so interested to hear you say that there's really not much difference between swab and feather because I've heard, you know, people say all kinds of things about feathers versus swabs and what leaves more garbage. We almost, I mean, we're, it's, it's, it's the absolute bright, well, bassoonists do, but um, double reed players are absolutely the brightest bunch of people you're ever going to meet. And boy, do we like controversy and argument about all sorts of stuff. And I used to really dig in my heels about the feathers and I've had, you know, I've had cantankerous discussions with people about um, contentious discussions with people about, um, about feathers versus swabs, but you know, do what you will. Just hey, don't get the don't get the swabs stuck in there. That's not good. So be very be ultra careful not to have a knot in it before you go in there, and um, just be mindful of the various um, pitfalls of each of them. You know, feathers can leave little bits of feather in there. That's true. Um, I guess there's no good way to do it, but uh, and you don't need to dry it in a dry kind of way. It's just basically get most of the water out. I wanted to ask about um, sustainability in oboe making. Uh, we hear a lot about endangered woods and, you know, rosewood and granadilla, and we see oboes being made out of different materials. And um, I know it's a big topic, but I'd love to hear you just kind of talk about that for a while and your, your thoughts and experiences and perspective on that issue. Well, I think woodwind making accounts for a relatively tiny um, segment of the Grenadilla harvest that comes from Mozambique and I suppose southern Tanzania. Um, these trees are quite ubiquitous there. They're, they're, um, I'm told they're as common as maple trees. So, uh, and Grenadilla, which is Dalbergia, um, what is it, Latifolia? Or, no, Melanoxalon, Dalbergia Melanoxalon is the um, Latin name for uh, Grenadilla. It's also called Mpingo in African. Um, in, in one of the African language um, languages. And so I, it's somewhat, it, it's a rosewood. And so Dalbergia is a rosewood and that is covered by the CITES agreement, which is, I guess, the Congress on the um, International Trade of Endangered Species. So importation and exportation of instruments made of any of the rosewoods is somewhat controlled. And um, so the governments are on this, it's primarily those rosewoods that come from Brazil that are being mowed down by the acre, you know, every minute in Brazil to make farmland and stuff that are really the, um, that should be the object of our, um, you know, scrutiny here. So I, I know, I know that probably sounds a little bit, you know, um, apologistic for, um, for that, but this is what I'm told and what I've gathered from, and actually, you know, my biology major helps out here. Um, Because I did study some ecology, but um, I wouldn't worry too much about grenadilla. I I understand the preponderance of it is actually used to make charcoal for the Middle East. So if we can convince the Saudis to stop making coffee over charcoal cookers and stuff, um, that's where most of it goes, apparently. So I don't feel too bad. Um, There is... um, there's a kind of wood that they're growing on plantations there that's sustainable and renewable called, uh, not, it's not a pingo, it's a mopane, uh, which they're starting to make instruments out of. And it's a dark brown, kind of warm sounding wood. But, you know, I have two, the two oboes I play on have plastic top joints and I have no problem with plastic personally playing on it. Um, I know some people feel that the wood makes a difference in the way the instrument sounds. And I, honestly, I can, cannot tell um, 
the plastic from the wood, really. And, and my science background tells me that that's a lot of bunk. Um, that, um, but people will argue that, you know, certain woods sound better. And um, I think that comes from a lack of understanding about um, the way the instruments work. You know, they, they, um, um, an oboe is really a boundary for its vibe for the vibrating air inside. So it's the vibrating air that is making the sound. It's not the wood. Although we feel it vibrate in our fingers, so so as a player we have the sensation that something's vibrating. But unlike a violin or a piano, or a tuning fork or a marimba, uh, the oboe is not producing the oboe itself. The material is not producing the sound. It's just containing the sound. And so that's a distinction. And you can read about this in any of the acoustics books that you want to read it from. Um, Arthur Benade would be a good one to read. Um, Musical acoustics. His book goes over this quite well. Uh, so um, that said, you know, people, people love their different kinds of woods. Um, I think uh, uh, um, the buffet one where they grind up a, um, well, no, they actually, they make a clarinet and then they sweep the floor and then they glom it together with resin and they make an oboe out of that. So um, that's my little. Is that the green line? About, that's the green line. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, these are, these are, are perhaps slightly marketing ploys for us to feel better about this whole thing. Um, it is an industrial process, unfortunately. It's a very small, um, it's a very small production, really, um, you know, woodwind instrument making. But yeah, I, I would encourage, you know, if anybody cares, you know, try more plastic if you feel, if you feel strongly about this, it's good. Because um, that will really eliminate the need to hack down another tree. You know, if we don't need to do that. I agree. It, it's, it's a, a sad thing. But um, I think the reason that the wood is considered scarce is because it's difficult to obtain um, because the, the, um, the people who cut it and the people who mill it and, and transport it, you know, it needs to make its way to the coast of Africa. And then it comes probably by ship to, to, uh, to Europe to be made into instruments. And it, it is a, it is a legacy of our colonialist past. It's true. Um, And, um, but it is, and, and if we realize that and and um, and try to do better, I think we're doing we're doing a good thing. So um, that's what I think. How is, how's that? Well, I I'd love to hear you. That's fantastic. But um, I'm fascinated by this idea that the oboe contains the sound; it doesn't make the sound. And I can hear hundreds of oboists straining against that truth, <laughs> <laughs> but. Could you expand on that and talk about that a little bit more? That's blowing my mind. And I think it could be a really freeing thought. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's difficult because we, we love the idea that a, a wooden instrument gives some kind of warmth to the sound. And, but um, the acoustics of an oboe are that um, the reed acts sort of like a valve. So when you or a bassoon, when you play it, um, it puffs open and then it um, it goes back to where it was and then it closes an equal amount and then goes back to zero. And in each one of those little puffs and non-puffs makes a more or less one, one sine wave, one um, wavelength. And um, each of those, you know, wavelength has a, an amplitude and a frequency and so forth. And uh, those, that vibrating air then is in the instrument. And um, it's the shape of the instrument that gives the oboe its particular timbre and characteristic. And when I say oboe, you could 
you know, you could say bassoon too. Um, and it's, so it's the length of the, of the vibrating air column. The vibrating air column is more or less what we, uh, is the, the analog would be a piano string or a string on a violin or even a guitar. So that is the thing that's vibrating and um, that's what makes the sound. It's not the instrument wiggling and jiggling that makes the sound. And uh, so the oboe X, as I said, sort of like a corral for the vibrating air. It sort of imagine that the vibrating air being a bunch of uh, you know a bunch of um, sheep, let's say, in a corral of a certain shape. And if you make the corral, um, and this is this is an, an analogy I often use, um, if you make the corral out of something like uh, barbed wire, so somewhat rough, then the sheep along the edge are going to get snagged on that, and you're going to get some kind of change in the size and the shape of the vibrating air column. So different textures of the inside of the instrument make a large difference in the way it sounds. So, you know, a smooth wood instrument on the inside or a smooth plastic instrument probably would sound brighter and a little more um, penetrating, let's say, than, uh, than a, a rougher, in, rougher insided instrument. So um, it's the wall effect um, against the vibrating air. And I think an engineer who studies something like laminar flow or flow through pipes would, would have, would be able to address this better than I can, but it's a, it's a, um, it's a subtle thing. Uh, and we romanticize the, the materials of the instrument because we, because it, it makes it more fun for us, but um, we don't, we really shouldn't maybe. Well, so that makes sense why you say the plastic top joint and the wood top joint, you can't hear the difference between. And my whole career, I've heard, um, oh, you know, when they tried the student's plastic model instrument or or they tested a bunch of different and they always sounded like themselves. Like we hear that mm -hmm. all the time, no matter what they play, they sound like themselves. That mm -hmm. what you're saying really speaks to the idea that with the exception of small variations, why a player would sound like their unique self, regardless of what material they're playing on. Yes, um, it's it's entirely true. And I think the reason, you know, plastic got such a bad reputation in instruments because they were just more crudely made than the professional mm. ones, which were typically made out of wood. So, um, right. but, you know, I have uh, Lorraine, um, is the oboe I play, and it. I have two two of their top joints, and they're terrific. I I would not be able to tell blindfolded which one is which if it's a Grenadilla one or a rosewood one or anything else. Now they're making lined ones with plastic, so they have sort of like a um, plastic interior, which um, will preserve that piece of wood from cracking, so it saves them from you know replacing that wood. And I know that bassoons are made uh, with a lining, uh, ebonite lining on the in, inside of the the mm -hmm. part that goes downward, right? All the way down through the, uh, the boot joint, the, right. um, the, the smaller part of that. So, yeah. Um, so the material there then can't be making a big difference, can it? Right. Fascinating. You blew my I'm, mind. I'm a believer now. Well, thank you. <laughs> so does this challenge the idea that oboes blow out and you need a new oboe every couple of years? No, because they do, because, um, they, um, they do erode and stretch and shrink. And, and a big thing they do is go out of round um, on the inside. They go oval inside and that really goofs up the, um, the acoustic. Um. So yeah, generally a played out instrument um, can't sustain the low notes at the pitch you want them to be at anymore. That's a good test for them. So if you press on the low notes and they, 
the gurgler or motorboat. Some people call it that. Um, it's really, it's really. I think the the term should be heterodyning. It's it's different, a different kind of wavelength clashing, clashing against each other. So, um, played out is a real phenomenon. Uh, deniers are just <laughs> in denial. Now you can. You can counteract a played out oboe by using larger and larger reeds um, because, um, um, but they're measurably larger at the top usually. So um, I could measure that it's, you know, I could measure an oboe and tell you if this is going to play well or not. And, and um, that's. Um, that's fascinating. You can actually put a ruler to it and say. No, no, I, I specialized uh, a type of ruler. It's a you know specialized set of measuring tools for the inside, oh. um, the bore measuring tool. So. But it's like, a, you know, it's like a ruler for, for the bore, measuring the, yeah. This is Oh, yeah, so I do exciting. that all the time. I do that Does, all the time. Do the plastic lining, the plastic top joints, because I have a wood top joint and a plastic top joint, and I play the plastic one all the time. Mm-hmm. Do the plastic ones change bore shape less than the wood ones? Yes, yes, okay. much less. But be careful with excessive swabbing because you can wear them out anyway. Um, the, the downside of the plastic, I think, and I've not really felt this, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it has a different coefficient of ex- thermal expansion. You can take all those. Uh, that means at different temperatures, it changes greater than wood does, mm. which is uh, a plus for wood. So plastic actually at really cold temperatures shrinks too much to be useful. Um, and it, uh, at high temperatures, it may expand too much to be useful. So, mm-hmm. um, but at room temperature, I find the plastic to be terrific. So, yeah. That is so interesting. And then it doesn't crack either. So that's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> don't drop it though. Don't drop it. Yeah, don't drop it. Yeah. But that is so interesting because we were at IDRS last week and Gilly mm-hmm. opened up her case and there was another oboist there who was like, why do you have two top joints? And was kind of baffled that Gilly would play plastic regularly. I, I observed that and was like, oh, this this person has hangups about plastic or associating it with a student model or, or something like that. So this is so interesting having had that experience just last week, you know, mm-hmm. the kind of visceral response to her having two top joints that she plays regularly. Well, people that make wood instruments and, and, um, um, you know, um, support <laughs> some, I mean, it's, it's in the, it's in the maker's best interest to get you to buy a new wobble every couple of years now, isn't it? So, <laughs> <laughs> It's the traditional material. It's mm-hmm. it's the traditional material wood, right. and um, you know, I I don't argue with people who insist that their that their wood sounds better. That's that's good. I mean, it it there's room for every opinion here. Of course, um, um, I'm just right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, so you told us about a funny memory that you had with uh, your fantastic career in repair. Are there any other beautiful memories that you'd like to share with us and our listeners? Well, I, I, you know, I'm extremely lucky to have come of age at a time when I got to, you know, when I was a kid, if you had said that I would personally meet, know, and work for John Mack, Alfred Genovese, Mark Lifshe, 
Ray Still, um, you name it, Lou Rosenblatt, you know, those guys. I would have completely fallen off my chair. But it's true. I've gotten to um, gotten to work for every one of those guys. And each one of them I could tell you an anecdote about and um, just a great a great thing. They were our great um, for what do you call that? You know, pioneer pioneers for us. And the the oval world continues. There's there's great ones um, you know, coming along that I've gotten to work for. And um, times change and things change and that's all good. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Well, I um, I made sure to to try to get as good as I could get on the oboe, um, and um, you know, one thing I left out there on my my little oboe story is that after getting to Philadelphia and um, setting up as a repairman, I spent a year studying with Robert Bloom, mm. um, who I consider to be probably my greatest influence. So um, I left that out. I should include that. I didn't mean to not include it, but. Um, I would say get as good as you can be, even if you want to become a repair person or go into some of the other aspect of playing the oboe. You know, not everybody has to play principal oboe or be an oboe section member of some orchestra. You can you can have a very wonderful life doing what I did, um, um, meet lots of wonderful people. I've gotten to play um, um, as a kind of bonus to my life in some great orchestras as a substitute here and there. I've you know, played many times in Philadelphia Orchestra and um, Baltimore and National Symphony and New York Philharmonic. And um, I, I never would have thought I'd do that. But um, you just, so my advice is to, to, um, to get as good as you can be on the instrument, no matter what aspect of this you want to do. And, uh, and then just have fun. It is, it is an expressive um, art, isn't it? And it's a, it's a personal thing. You don't have to you don't have to do what everybody else says you need to do. So you've got to follow your own voice and your own, you know, your own um, you know, ideals or whatever you have. So, John, thank you so much. This was such an excellent, mind-blowing conversation. <laughs> we are so grateful that you took this time to share with us and our listeners. Thank you so much. Well, you are most welcome. So nice to have spoken with you both. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that episode. We know that you did. Um, please rate and review. Please subscribe. Uh, please follow us on social media. And please don't send me hate mail for including that stomach sound. No, they're going to send you praise mail. <laughs> but um, Chris, who do we have coming up on the next episode? The next episode features composer and bassoonist John Steinmetz. I love him. Go make read. It's time to have this nerd parade. <laughs> We that's how tired we are. <laughs> Bye y'all. We love you. <laughs>